0: Hey everyone, this is James Wilson with MTB Strength Training Systems and welcome to another Riding for a Lifetime podcast. In this podcast, I'm going to share some of the lessons that I've had over my training career. I guess you could say, you know, some of the mistakes that I've made or, you know, things that I've changed. Uh, But basically, like I said, I've been, you know, uh, training for quite a while. I've had uh, a long training career, both personally, I've been working out for You know, well over, you know, 30 years. uh, Personally, I mean, shoot, I started, I think, training at like 11 or 12 on on some level, uh, you know, with the old plastic weights with, you know, filled with cement in the garage uh, that my dad had. And so, um, anyways, it's been, you know, I've been working out myself personally pretty consistently for all of that time. And so I've had a chance, you know, both personally to gain a lot of experience. Uh, I've been a professional in the strength training industry since about like 1997 or 98. I forget exactly when I got uh, certified as a as a trainer for the first time. and so uh, you know again, got you know quite a, a bit of experience in working with people and doing this professionally. and then uh, I started riding mountain bikes in two thousand and you know very quickly after started riding, started looking for ways to, use strength training to improve my performance on a personal level. And that eventually led to me working with riders and then starting MTB Strength Training Systems in 2005. So I've got almost, you know, two decades of experience in working specifically with mountain bikers. And so again, over that time, I've definitely... Uh, change some things and do some things differently now. Um, You know, there's the old saying, there's a difference between, you know, 20 years experience and having the same uh, one year of experience 20 times in a row. And you'll, you know, find that there's, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people who have years in an industry or years doing something. And because they're not challenging themselves, they're not trying to prove themselves wrong. They don't really grow, right? And so it, it, it can be tough when you, come across something that says like, hey, you know, the thing that you've been doing or this idea that you had, it's, uh, you know, maybe uh, not quite exactly the best way to do it or it could be just flat out wrong, right? And so it's not always comfortable and easy to, hear that and find that out. But I think that you need to be challenging yourself in that way, especially if you want to continue growing as a person, uh, you know, both, you know, professionally, or I mean personally and professionally and and all that stuff uh, as, as we age and, you know, it goes into the whole uh, riding for a lifetime concept because again, it's not just what happens on the bike, but what happens off the bike that we need to start uh, considering as well. But anyways, that's kind of a deeper philosophical level, Uh, you know, just kind of getting back to what we're, we're going to talk about, uh, what we're talking about today, and that is uh, some of the mistakes that I've made and the lessons that I have learned. So these are are in no particular order. I literally sat down and just listed out what I th- was thought were some of the the. Things that I do differently now and, and some of the mistakes that i would made and just kind of the order that they came out of my head is how they are listed here. So uh, this isn't like, you know, most important to least important or anything like that. Just kind of a random order as, as they came out of my head. And so we're going to start with the, the first one. And I think this one came out first because this is something that I have been talking about a lot lately. So it's definitely top of mind. And that was uh, one of the mistakes that I made was not doing uh, isolation or bodybuilding exercises and, and focusing way too much on uh, quote unquote functional training. Um, so again, like I said, this is something that I've been talking about especially uh in relation to the riding for a lifetime concept um, as you get older you will start to lose muscle mass it's just a natural process and so as you make that change from being a younger rider to an older rider uh you know as a 40 plus year old rider you do Need to think about that process, whether it's it's still uh, at some point in the future, uh, but right around the corner, um, or you're you're going through it right now. You know, doing some things to stimulate muscle growth uh, will help give you more of a reserve, so you're able, you know, just uh, you have more to to lose, I guess, and you're also able to um to to slow that that decline. You're able to slow that loss through bodybuilder type training and so the again this is one of the biggest differences between what a 40 plus year old rider needs to worry about when it comes to strength training and, and say like a you know a rider in their 20s who may be trying to optimize their strength to weight ratio, you know, they may be, again, a lot of riders really would benefit from adding some muscle, but at a certain point, you know, there may be a point where you'll be like, you know, you don't really need to add any more weight. In fact, we want to try to minimize your weight and we want to try to, you know, really uh, maximize your strength and power at this point. Um, Whereas with the 40 plus year old rider, I would, you know, that same situation, I may be like, man, you know, uh, we could stand to add another five pounds if we can. Again, it's not really going to affect your performance that much. And it's going to Set you up down the road to be able to perform at a much higher level because you're going to have that muscle reserve and we're going to continue to do some things to preserve that muscle. And so it becomes a, a much more important concern for the 40-plus-year-old rider. And so, uh, again, just you know, for myself, one of the reasons I made this mistake is because I, I came up at a very interesting time in the strength training industry, and that is uh, there's a very clear delineation there in the the mid to late 90s where uh, we started to to hear more about uh, what became functional training. And so again, if you've started working out within the last like 20 years, then functional training is really, it's been around the entire time. So you probably don't remember a time before uh, functional training but when I first started uh, working out in the late 80s, early 90s, everything was bodybuilding. the answer to everything was was bodybuilding whether you wanted to put on muscle, gain strength improve athletic performance and bodybuilding tended to be typified by training by body parts right so you're training biceps, triceps, chest, back, um, you know, tends to be relatively high volume. So you're doing multiple exercises for, uh, you know, th- three or more sets and, and often in the eight to 15 or more rep range. And so these type of, of programs are really good for stimulating muscle growth, but they're not so great for actually creating strength. And especially if you're not doing anything athletic in, in addition to your bodybuilder training, they can create a bit of a, a non-functional, non-athletic um, physique where you may look strong, but you're not very coordinated. You're not actually able to apply the strength in a way that translates over in the real world. And so it was this where, you know, bodybuilding kind of got the its bad name was that, you know, there was a better way to train for athletes. And so we started to, to you know, look at like everything that had to do with bodybuilding is kind of a a bit of a bad word. And so the problem is though, is that there are some aspects of bodybuilding that are good. So for example, like isolation exercises, um, they build isometric strength throughout the body right especially if you're doing free weight exercises so again if you're doing a a a dumbbell curl a single arm dumbbell curl and you know you're doing a lot of isometric tension throughout the body to hold the rest of you still while you're curling at the elbow so yeah it's only the elbow that's that's moving but the whole your whole body's working and creating tension in order to create that movement and then these single joint movements are also good for uh joint health and building joint resiliency so uh and, and like i mentioned the the building and holding onto a muscle mass so there are positive things from bodybuilding that we want to make sure that we are using as mountain bikers so um and again it's not going to kill your functional strength in fact you know one of the the, the interesting things in the World of submission grappling. I've been, you know, doing uh, jujitsu for about ten years now. And in the competitive side of that, there are actually two really high-level grapplers. One of them, who's recognized as being the best uh, of all time at, at no gi submission grappling, a guy named Gordon Ryan. And there's another guy named uh, Nick Rodriguez, and they are both, uh, you know, unapologetic bodybuilder-type training. Like, you know, yeah, they do their squats, and you know, there's it's not, uh, you know, there's some like, you know, which crossover into some functional training stuff but they do a lot and of bodybuilders stuff and and like i said they're very unapologetic about it and there's definitely nothing about it that's killing their performance and again somebody may argue maybe they perform even better but it's like look man they're at the top of their game so how I, you know maybe i don't know i think that it just goes to show that if you're doing athletic things outside of the gym that you're not going to become unathletic simply because you're doing a lot of bodybuilder type training. So, um, you know, again, I, uh, you know, I like to do probably 80, 90% of my workout is still as what you would kind of consider that quote unquote functional training and having some bodybuilder type stuff sprinkled in and then having a phase every, you know, uh, you know, three to four months where I'll spend some time doing the, you know, kind of a bodybuilder type loading parameters. And so again, it's not this, it does, it's not a, a, a majority of what I'm doing, but it definitely is something that I've started doing, uh, more of than, um, than than I was doing. Like I said, I think that was a mistake of mine and and something that I'm hoping to help uh the you know mountain bikers, especially the older rider, understand the importance of is is making sure that you're you're thinking about that stuff too. So um moving on to the next one. Uh using too much unstable surface training. And so this is something I I haven't really done for quite a while, but this was something that I got really, really into for a while. So um, like again I was around uh, when the Swiss balls uh, first got introduced into the fitness field through a guy named Paul Check, and again, I'm sure there's some record of of you know these things on some level being used in the fitness industry before Paul Check in this, but I, I I do believe that Paul Check uh, and at at that point really helped to popularize the use of Swiss balls in. The fitness field and before that they were largely kind of a rehab you'd see them in rehab settings but they really became popular in the fitness field and again this idea of unstable surface training which would require you to train your balance and your stabilizers and you know that it, that it was the balance and stabilizing muscles that were the weak link in athletic performance and helping to prevent injury and so it really made a lot of sense there was a lot of logic to what was uh, what was being said, and so um, I ended up with you know every size Swiss ball you could get. I used them for just about everything. I mean, I, I literally was just trying to make up like, okay, what is the what is the Swiss ball version of this exercise? And uh, you know, I trained clients using them. I trained myself using them. But the problem was, is that man, after a little bit, I had to admit, like, I wasn't getting stronger my it wasn't helping my performance um, i wasn't adding size i wasn't really getting anything out of it noticeable other than just getting better at doing those exercises on the on the swiss ball on the unstable surfaces so, uh, you know, like I said, I just got better at balancing on things while lifting weights. Um, and, and since then, there's been several studies that have looked at unstable surface training and also kind of balance training stuff. And what you find is that an unstable surface is going to decrease motor recruitment. And so you're not only like kind of challenging the stabilizing muscles, you're actually recruiting fewer of the muscles in the main muscle group that should be driving the movement and so that's actually tends to be a bad thing especially if you're wanting to build strength and size so again i'm not saying there's not a time and a place where if you've really identified that the stabilizers or something like that is the weak link but for the most part you're handicapping yourself by using unstable surface training uh, in order uh, to get stronger at size because you're actually lowering the ability to recruit the muscle fibers in the areas that you're trying to to target and work. And the other thing is that um, balance training has very limited carryover to other activities. So what they found is that balance training gets you better at balancing in that specific situation of the balance training. But trying to do balance training in one way and then go and use that balance in another way that that transfer is not there like we would assume so what this means is that trying to balance on a stability ball or swiss ball while you're doing your your presses or you know really anything and thinking that you're you're helping to improve your balance on your bike it's not really helping you like you think it is again the placebo effect is very strong, and the psychology of things is very strong. And if you truly believe that it's helping you, and it, and, and you've seen that, and it's then like I'm not going to tell you it's not right. I'm not going to take away your magic beans if you believe they're magic beans. Like hell, it's not. I don't care, right? What I'm doing though is just trying to. If you are doing this stuff in hopes that it's helping, and you're thinking like, man, this really isn't helping. Like you know, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. I'm just letting you know that yeah, old boy's naked. That unstable surface training is not what it's cracked up to be and what it's billed as, especially to uh, to mountain bikers. So again, if you've got a lot of time to kill, like that's something that you'll see if you're like a professional rider. So if you see in like, you know, pros training and they're doing some unstable surface training, man, they might just be filling time. Right. Like they're like, that's all they do is train and recover. And so they're, they have a lot more training time available to them. And so those are like the little things that you could use, you know, the, that they're going to naturally keep the intensity lower while still getting some movement. And so again, you know, I hate to use the words always and never because it shows a lack of critical thinking skills. So I'm not going to say that there's never a use for unstable surface training. I'm just saying that for like my own personal training, the, the training for the, 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 the riders that I work with, and probably your training, if you're listening to this, um, it's it's not the best use of your training time. And so uh, so anyways, that's something, like I said, that I was really into and uh, had to uh, move on from after spending quite a bit of time, effort, and money uh, in, in getting into. Um, so my next mistake that I made, and this one's going to sound a little funny, coming from a a strength coach and that is giving too much weight to strength training in the development of an athlete and this is a common mistake made with strength coaches because like what do we do we help people get stronger and so you start to see the world through that that uh, prism of okay helping an athlete get stronger is how i'm going to help them become a better athlete and there is something to that Right. But, you know, like myself personally, I had, I had experienced how getting stronger had helped me athletically, both when I ran track and then also uh, uh, as I got into mountain biking. So it, it makes sense that getting stronger will make you a better athlete or give you the potential to be a better athlete. But it can go too far, and I was definitely you know mistake that I had made. You know, I'd I'd literally try to talk some of the athletes that I was working with, um, not on a regular basis, but on occasion. Like they'd be telling me like, "Hey, man, I got to skip this workout because I got this thing with the the team. We're gonna do this thing," and I, I'd be like, "Oh man, you know, you don't need you know missing your strength workouts really gonna uh, be detrimental to your your performance." And it's like, man, you know, what's gonna be detrimental to their performance is not doing their sport. I mean, on some level, like the more of your sport that you can do, the better you're going to get at your sport. And and so that was something that it really, you know, it, it sounds uh, obvious when you say it, but it's, it comes down to like, okay, what is your, how does that come out in practice? And so again, just the way that I was communicating with people and my own thoughts and how I was pushing things, I definitely feel like I was, was putting too much emphasis on strength training, uh, in that development. And so, you know, the, but again, it's kind of a little bit of a, um, a, a, a double-edged sword, right? Like there's two sides to that coin and that the, like strength training, it can be the most important thing that you can do, but only if you're weak, right? If strength is truly the weak link to you being able to uh perform at an adequate level in your sport then you do need to get stronger but one doing your sport will get you stronger at doing your sport like there's you know just some sport specific strength that comes from from doing the sport itself and the um the time that it takes to to get stronger for your sport it shouldn't take away from your practice you know of of the sport and so again there's uh you know Your sport training should take precedence. And so for us riding our bike, riding mountain bikes, um, which uh, should take precedence over everything else. Um, And the only thing that's going to make you a better mountain biker is, you know, time on the bike. Uh, Strength training is supposed to support that and not take away from it. So, you know, is it important? Yes. Uh, and, And it's only the most important thing that you could do if you're not doing it at all. Right, like If there's a rider who's like, hey man, I want to improve my performance and all I do is ride and I don't do any strength training. Well, for that rider, the most important thing they can do is start doing some strength training. But once they start doing some strength training, uh, at that point, riding is, is the most important thing and we need to figure out how to keep them strength training. Right, It can't be so important that it takes over and you don't do the strength training. You, you need to figure out how do I do the strength training while prioritizing riding and, and how will it support that. And so, um, so let's, you know, there is a time to flip that. I will say, uh, and that's in the off season. And and so again, even if you live somewhere where you can ride year round, I'd still say like the idea of an off season is important for you. And this would typically be the time of year when you're, you know, the weather probably allows you to ride less. And this would be where your training is prioritized and and your riding isn't. And so like, you know, having workouts or having a training load in the gym that detracts from your ability to ride a certain level, or maybe you got to take it easy one day uh, when you didn't have it planned because you're still sore from a gym workout. Like that can be fine because you're spending a time focused on trying to get stronger and build that, that athletic base. And then um, but again, knowing that like, that ultimately the thing that's going to make you a better rider, the thing that's really going to make you that, that better athlete is practicing your sport. And so like when that gets flipped again, and it's back to prioritizing riding, that's when the gains and stuff on the, on the trail are really going to come. And so that's the, the rhythm, uh, that you want to, you know, find yourself in with your riding, uh, with your riding and training. Um, but again, just like I said, just, a uh, you know, mistake that I made early on, uh, was, uh, not really recognizing how important just riding your bike was. And again, the idea of like, you know, specific physical prep versus general physical prep, because again, we talk about sport-specific training. And so in my mind, I'm like, oh man, we're doing these sport-specific exercises and sport-specific conditioning. and But the reality is, is like specific physical prep is what takes place when you're actually playing your sport. And so for us as mountain bikers, it's when you're on a mountain bike. And anything that's not on a mountain bike is general physical prep. And so anything that happens in the gym, right, is general physical prep. And and there's a distinct difference in uh the importance of general physical versus specific physical prep and it's that that specific that really makes us better at our sport. And so again, it was that concept and really kind of grasping that that helped me understand like okay, like as, as important as I think this is and as sport specific as this is, it's still general physical prep, which means that it takes a back seat. Uh, ultimately, in the long run, um, you know, there may be cycles where it, where it becomes the priority, but generally speaking, recognizing that uh, the, the specific physical prep has to be the priority um, for us. And so, uh, so anyways, uh, moving on to my uh, next one, and that is that thinking that long, slow distance training was a waste of time. And so I will say this is a bit of a tricky one because context matters a lot here as well. Context matters a lot for a lot of these things, but uh, just understanding that context matters for this um, is important. And so uh, myself personally, one of the things that I, I kind of got known for, uh, in the mountain bike training world was advocating for the use of high intensity intervals instead of aerobic base training for mountain biking. And again, back in 2005, this was, you know, virtually unheard of, I mean, road riding training programs dominated the scene for, uh, for mountain biking. And again, I one of the reasons I started MTV strength training systems is because I was looking for information on like, how do I train for mountain biking? And everything that I found was basically, well, you follow this road riding program for cardio, and then you follow this bodybuilding program for strength. And it's like I'm I'm sitting here like I know that's not how athletes train. I know that's not like specific to what I'm doing on the trail. Like there's got to be a better way, and that's what led me to 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 start researching, experimenting, and finding, um, you know, different ways of of doing it. And so, uh, again, I'm not saying that um the you know I was completely wrong. I, I believe that I just kind of went too far to the extreme with the high intensity interval stuff. And I, I do think that, especially in 2005, that there there wasn't enough emphasis on interval training. There was way too much of an emphasis on, on riding uh, a road bike for long distances in order to get in shape for riding mountain bikes, no matter what discipline you were in, whether it was cross-country riding or downhilling or whatever in between. And so, uh, one of the problems, and you know, the, was that a lot of riders who followed these programs felt that they weren't actually in shape for uh, for you know riding when the season actually started, and that they had to ride themselves into specific mountain bike shape for a few weeks. And this was a common thing that I heard from people about their experience with these road riding based. Uh, training programs was that when they got on the trail they just physically felt like they weren't fully physically prepared for trail riding and it took them a few weeks to kind of ride themselves in a trail riding shape Um, another thing that i uh, that was observed uh, i think was pretty obvious just looking at the results was that riders from areas where they could ride trails and ride mountain bikes all year round so think like southern california uh you know australia um for example like the riders who were in these areas were some of the best in the world. And again, they were able to ride their bikes all year round and that just made them better mountain bikers. Again, going back to, you know, kind of what I touched on in in my previous mistake of, of not realizing the importance of specific physical prep. And, uh, you know, I think one of the mistakes that, that was being made and still made is that when you're you're looking at a, a way to get better at riding for, you know, your conditioning for mountain biking, like, you know, yeah, there's some lessons that we can learn from road riding. But like road riding and specifically riding a road bike, uh, for, for a road rider, that's specific physical prep. So they're going to do a lot of that because that's what's specific to their sport. Uh, for a mountain biker who's spending a lot of time on a road bike, that is general physical prep because that's not your mountain bike. And so there's a, a difference in the carryover that you're gonna have uh, from that. And so uh, so I think that there are some things to consider as mountain bikers, um, you know, that you want to keep in mind. And another thing is that you know riding counts as cardio training. And so I think this was another thing that a lot of riders, uh, you know, don't really consider. They think like I've got to ride plus do cardio training. And they don't realize that, man, if you're riding a lot, like that is cardio training. So you may still need to do some conditioning. I'm not saying that you don't, but you need to keep that in mind. And if you're trying to do like a full conditioning program on top of riding, because you don't count riding as part of your cardio training, man, you're going to, you're going to overtrain, like you're going to burn out doing that. And that's going to affect your, uh, your performance. And so, um, you know, you want to, uh, you know, make sure that you're not doing a lot of distance riding on a road bike. Uh, you know, again, you want to make sure that riding your mountain bike is the priority. And so if you're doing a lot of distance riding on a road bike and it's detracting from your ability to get out on the trail, it's detracting from your performance on the trail, then it may not be the best strategy for you, right? So, but if you aren't trail riding a bunch, then you do need to have some sort of distance training in your program. And this is something that I really uh, have learned over the last several years in that I just have not been able to ride nearly as much as I could when I was in my 20s and and 30s. And so again, just, you know, several uh, factors go along with that. But, uh, you know, I used to ride, you know, three, four, five, you know, sometimes more days a week. And so uh, having that cut back, um, and seeing that man, I, my my conditioning and stuff starts to be affected because I'm not riding as much. Well, I need to fill that in with something, and so doing some some long sto- slow distance, and I think they call it zone two cardio, is the the um, you know one of the the buzzwords out there that it's used to describe this type of training, uh, where you're just cruising at an easy pace, right? We're not doing intervals, we're not like getting the heart rate up super high but you're just cruising along at a, at a relatively, uh, decent pace. And, uh, you know, but again, it's still, it's an easy effort, but that has, uh, that has benefit. And that's something that I used to think was completely worthless, that it would make you a slow athlete. And again, I do think that it can, in certain contexts it can. Um, but I, I think that in, Again, it's kind of like some of the bodybuilding stuff, right? That like we threw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that the high intensity interval uh, hype through some of the the, the distance training uh, baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And so there are benefits from it. So again, if you're not doing a lot of trail riding, then having some distance training in your program is good. Um, this type of, of you know long, slow distance training is also good for recovery. So again, like recovery doesn't mean doing nothing. So on a, you know, a recovery day, spending 20, 30 minutes, just cruising in at an easy pace. Um, you know, you could also go for a brisk hike, uh, rucking where you have uh, a loaded pack on while you're hiking is another way to get this type of cardio. So there's, there's several different ways to do this, but you're just looking for an extended period of you know twenty to thirty minutes for recovery, you could go for you know forty five minutes to an hour longer if you're looking to like you know for conditioning effect from it. Um, and this type of training is also good for your basic metabolic health. It's you know your your mitochondrial density is positively affected by this type of training, and so uh, which and that that mitochondrial uh, density and health is important to your overall metabolic health. So there are benefits to doing this uh, type of training. So if you're getting several hours of riding in each week um, then you can use some of the long slow distance stuff for recovery Um, but if you aren't getting several hours of riding in each week then you probably want to consider having it as part of your overall conditioning program because again like from that metabolic health side uh, again like just how this this type of uh, conditioning helps with that Uh, from again from the the mitochondrial health and mitochondrial density and and how that affects that metabolic health that's just an angle that again we want to be thinking of as we uh, get older and so uh, having this this type of training this type of cardio as part of your overall approach will help with that and so again you know, if you're in your 20s and you're just riding your face off all week long and then you probably don't need to be worried about a lot of that. I'd still say like maybe, you know, a, a session once a week for some recovery would be good. Um, but that just goes into like cycling the intensity of your training program or your rides, which you should be doing anyways. Um, but, you know, uh, so yeah, so that's, the, um, so that's the idea with that, right? So long slow distance has... Uh, value for us as an older rider that it doesn't necessarily have for the younger riders riding a bunch more um, but we need to keep that in mind. So uh, so moving on here I've got a couple more uh, lessons here. Um, one here is changing exercises too often and uh, something that did carry over from bodybuilding to functional training was the idea of muscle confusion or the need to change your exercises on a frequent basis um again the idea being that y- you don't want the body to fully adapt to what you're doing so by changing the exercise you're going to keep yourself from hitting a plateau and you know seeing constant improvement in your training in fact like one style of training uh crossfit became very popular and it was based on the idea to the extreme right this, this idea to the extreme which is that you never want to repeat the same workout twice in a row and so this this idea of you know muscle or, or you know body confusion whatever you want to call it um you know, is, uh, very strong in some circles. Uh, so, but even for people who like myself, who subscribe to the idea that you needed more consistency than that, right? Like changing exercises every day wasn't good, but we did need to switch things up. I would still run things on a four week cycle. Um, and again, the theory behind it seems solid the, you know, but the science and the real world evidence suggests that there's, we can actually go a little bit longer than that. Right. And so, uh, again, my idea that like having to change every four weeks or else I'd start to stagnate. Um, one of the things that changed my, my thoughts on this was my experience with Jim Wendler's five, three, one program. And in this, this is a powerlifting style program. And so you're picking a, a core lift, for, you know, uh, push, pull, squat, and hinge. And then you're just sticking with that core lift and you're cycling the weights in a very specific way that he explains in the program. And then you're just going through this cycle of uh, with the weights until you... you can't do it anymore right like you reach the upper limit and you can't add any more weight or, or reps and so at that point you can either uh, cycle back down and kind of start to build momentum again or you can change exercises but you end up repeating the same exercises for months on end and so but you're getting stronger and you're seeing results the whole time and so again the idea that if I needed to change my exercises every four weeks or else I'd stop seeing results well obviously that wasn't true and, you know, when you look at how some of the strongest people in the world uh, train, uh, which are powerlifters, uh, they use a lot of consistency with their exercises. And so, uh, you know, they will, um, you know, again, and, and even within the variety that you see what you, what'll be, they have a saying, you know, doing the same, but different. And so it's not these giant changes, it's these little changes that they'll often make. And so, uh, but they want to try to keep consistency in a movement because it allows them to build efficiency in the movement. And that efficiency also helps them to build strength. And so that's a big, um, a big factor with it. And so, uh, so what I've found is that uh, running on a six to eight week cycle is going to work better than running on a four week cycle. So what I'll do is I'll pick a core exercise for each of the four basic movement patterns. Like I said, push, pull, hinge, and squat and then I'll run an eight week cycle with them. I'll do other exercises other than those four. And with those exercises, I will give myself the option after four weeks. To change them up. And so I'll change them up either if I'm starting to max out on them, you know, say I'm doing like, you know, some sort of like shoulder raise and, and I I'm starting to max out my, my, my weight and reps with that. So maybe I'll change the exercise with that. Um, or if I'm just kind of bored, right? And I, I'm like, man, I want to try a different exercise for this or or whatever. So there is something to keeping yourself mentally uh, engaged. And, and that's one of the things that changing exercises does is it makes you feel like, you know, it keeps you mentally engaged because you're, you're constantly trying to uh, figure out something new. But so there is something to that, but you know, you don't want to take it too far. And so having some consistency, but allowing yourself the, the chance to change some things up every four weeks, um, I feel gives me a good middle ground uh, with that. And so I will um, start out with a uh, well below my max effort and this is something else that you learn from from powerlifting uh style training is that it's better to start undershoot in the beginning and build momentum into the end than it is to start out week 1 maxing out and then just hanging on with your freaking fingernails through the program right so you want to start out in week 1 with like uh feeling like you've got you know a, a at least like two reps in reserve, meaning like you could get two more reps with the weight, right? And then week uh, two, like one rep in reserve, you know, week three, if you want to start taking it closer to that, you know, again, I'm talking about like technical failure, right? Not the full on like, I can't move the weight anymore, because by that point, you've probably, uh, you know, are well past technical failure. So when I'm talking about Failure, I'm usually talking about that technical failure as opposed to just like that 100% max effort, just get the weight up no matter what type of thing, which unless you are a power lifter and are getting paid based on how much you lift, that's probably never a good idea to to just do it that way. Um, But anyway, so like I said, I will build momentum into my max efforts in the final weeks of the cycle. Uh, And then I will end week eight with a deloading week. And so I'll cut back on the sets and the reps. Um, I'll try to keep the weight at at least 90% of what I did for my, my max effort on that lift, which is, you know, probably what I did in week seven. Um, and so I won't cut the weight down too much, but I will cut the, like, you know, if I did like, you know, two sets of, of 10 reps, I'll do like, you know, one set of five, right? Like, I mean, really dramatically cutting the load, but trying to keep the intensity level, uh, relatively high, um, and then uh, after week eight, then I'll start over with a new cycle. and I'll usually pick some new exercises and then 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 go from there. And so uh, I find that this works uh, well for me, um, and and you know, some of the riders that I've been doing this with that I work with. And so it, uh, you know, like I said, changing exercises, it is entertaining and it makes you feel sore. And so again, when you're changing exercises up a bunch, uh, every time you start a new exercise, there, there's some soreness related to that, and so that that can feel like, "Hey, man, I feel sore. I must be getting some results." Um, but it doesn't allow you time to really get the most out of the exercise. And in my opinion, I do think that it's a safer and easier way to do uh, to train on your joints. Um, since your body does get a chance to get used to the exercises and it finds a groove for them, it really starts to get more efficient with them, which to me just feels safer and easier than just grinding through new lifts all the time. Um, and again, I think the, that, that muscle soreness kind of speaks to that that uh, you know you're able to lift heavier loads and you're not your the muscle soreness isn't as bad because you've had a chance to really get used to the weights versus if you're changing exercises uh, you know really often. And then really trying to push the weights too, man, you can induce a lot of soreness that way. Um, And then that's where, you know, one, I can just make it suck to ride the next day or or do much of anything else. And I also think that's where you're starting to run into injury potential as well. Um, So anyways, uh, so but that's just something to consider, uh, you know, with your your exercises. I know a lot of programs work on a four-week cycle, but you could just double that. Um, And so whatever program you've got, if it's like a 12-week program, all of a sudden it's a 24-week program. Right, and you'll probably, uh, probably get more out of it that way too. Um, so moving on, I got two more uh, things I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, the first one was discounting the value of stretching. And so stretching, uh, you know, kind of like bodybuilding, became a bit of a dirty word in the functional training world. Uh, there was you know, one study in particular, uh, but uh, that, that found that uh, sh- like stretching your hamstrings and then immediately trying to do a vertical jump uh, decrease your performance in the vertical jump. And so well that obviously shows that stretching is going to make you weak and slow, uh, right? And so not so fast. Turns out that's not quite the case. But again, it was easy to, to see where the logic from that came from. And so uh, the the cool thing to do was mobility training, right? Like we didn't do stretching, we did mobility training. And the mobility training tended to focus on moving through a joint range of motion. So it was more active and we're activating the nervous system and all the stuff like that. Uh, and so while it's helpful, I found that mobility training can't fully replace static stretching. So I started to, uh, do more static stretching. Um, there's a a strength coach named Ian King, who's a real big, uh, static stretching advocate. And so reading some of his stuff, I started to do more stretching myself and I found that I just felt better. Um, that I just felt like it helped me. So I've actually, you know, I started using it with the athletes that I worked with. Um, and so again, like, but you know, first like stretching is not about trying to quote unquote, lengthen your muscle or loosen joints, right? Like I think a lot of times, you know, people well meaningly make claims for stretching because they don't really understand what's going on uh, with, with it. And so they say stuff like we're trying to lengthen the muscle or loosen the joints. And then, people who know better are like, well, that's a stupid thing to say. That's not really what's happening. So therefore, you don't know what you're talking about. So therefore, stretching must suck, right? So it's just, it's this weird, uh, weird thing where someone makes a a false claim for stretching. That doesn't mean that stretching doesn't have value. It just means that what they're saying specifically is happening may not be the full story, right? And so, um, you know, for me, like, again, like what exactly is happening? I don't know. I don't think that they really have like, the the um you know the an exact idea there's something happening with the nervous system there's something happening you know with some physical changes and things but the, the the overall idea for me with stretching is is it's being able to relax into positions and then working on getting deeper into that range of motion while staying relaxed until you're in the range of motion you need you know, to be for function and safety. And I think that's an important thing. Like you don't, you can be too, too flexible, right? Like you don't want to be like so flexible that it does make you loose. There's, you know, having a little tightness in your joints in context of what you're doing uh, can be important. And so you want enough mobility to move through the ranges of motion that you need to for your sport and everyday life, plus a little bit more. So if you get pushed out into something extreme that you have that little extra, uh, to, to help you potentially not get something torn or ripped or, or whatever if you get pushed into an extreme range of motion. So again, a lot of like mobility, it, it's going to improve your performance because you can move more efficiently through bigger ranges of motion. And also, if you uh, do find yourself you know wrecking or something happens and, you, and your joints are getting pulled into uh, extreme ranges of motion, the more range of motion you have, the less likely you are for something to get torn and and hurt. Right. And so there's, um, definite benefit for us to having good mobility. And I think that stretching is a good, uh, is an important part of that. And so, um, your breathing is a big part of this for me, stretching's kind of borders on breath work because you should be using your breathing to help you relax and get deeper into your range of motion. Um, so, you know, mobility, uh, training helps with being able to move through and control your range of motion and stretching seems to help you improve that range of motion and maintain it better. And so, you know, again, like stretching helps you get the joints, uh, you know, improve that range of motion if you need to, um, and maintain it. And then the mobility training is important to help you uh, you know, have control and, and stuff of it. And so the, the two go hand in hand, you just don't want to not do stretching. Because um, I feel like stretching definitely has, uh, a, you know, benefits uh, for us. And so I recommend picking a basic stretch for the major muscle groups. So like you know, chest, back, quads, hamstrings, you know, just uh, calves, you know, again, there's, there's, uh, you know, just some of the, the basic muscle groups that you would, uh, that, that you would, about training um and you want to hold your stretches for either 15 to 20 seconds or for five breaths so you can you know either count in your head or and even if you're counting you should still be using your breathing to help you relax uh and so again that's why like i like to use my my breasts because if i'm focused on my breathing and and counting five breaths, then it just kind of helps me use my breathing a little bit more effectively. But again, you can use whatever, uh, you know, works, works good for you. Um, But like I said, using your breathing to help you relax into the stretch. Uh, If you don't get any deeper into your stretch, but your breathing is more relaxed, then you've accomplished something important. Right. Like the first step towards you being able to get deeper into a range of motion is your body not feeling like it's in danger being at the point that you're at already. Right. If, it, if you get to the end of a range of motion and you want to come a little bit deeper, but your body's like, you know, tensed up and your breathing's shallow and, and you're kind of like a kind of almost like a panicky fight or flight type, uh, you know, uh, you know, mindset or, 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 you know, mode, then it's going to be hard for you to come deeper. Right, your body's gonna be very reluctant to let you come any deeper. And so just being able to relax into a position is gonna help you set yourself up to be able to come deeper down the road. So uh so use your breathing with your stretching. Um, but again, stretching is is I think an important part of your overall mobility training and something that I discounted uh for a while and, and kind of got caught up in the hype about thinking that stretching was gonna make me slow and weak, but that is uh simply not the case. And so finally my last one, and this one may sound a little surprising to people, um, and that is uh overhyping kettlebells. And so again, I don't want this to sound sacrilegious, so let me explain what I mean by this. I just I think kettlebells are a great training tool and I still use them a lot in my own training. I just I think that I went too far down the kettlebell rabbit uh you know hole, kettlebell training rabbit hole and I started to discount the value of other training tools, especially the dumbbell. Um, you know, again, I think that that was kind of one of the the selling points of the kettlebell was that it was a more functional training tool than a dumbbell. And so they had all these reasons for what, you know, the off-centered load and, and all this stuff. And so it, it, I really did start to believe that kettlebells were the superior training tool to dumbbells, but I've I've really come to believe that dumbbells have a important part, an important place in our, our training programs. Um, you know, the truth is you can do everything you can do uh with a kettlebell using a dumbbell. And so anything a Turkish getup, um, a swing, a, a clean, a snatch um, you know, name it, name any exercise you can do with a kettlebell and you can do it with a dumbbell. Again, there's some, a little, some differences because of how the load is distributed, but they're not so far off that you're not getting like 90 plus percent of the results, you know, and even then it's like, you're getting hundred percent of the results from the dumbbell exercise. They may just be a slightly different because of some of those, those, those things with the kettlebell, but you know, you're not going to notice a giant difference on the playing field. I mean, if you're using dumbbells, uh, and with the exact same program and somebody else is using kettlebells, it's not like they're going to be kicking your ass because of the kettlebell. Right. And so there's also some things that you can do with dumbbells that are a little harder to do with kettlebells. So something like a cheat curl, uh, you know, the exercise where you have your feet narrow and the dumbbells are outside your legs and you're, you're using like a hip hinge type, you know, swing motion to, uh, to, to use momentum to curl the weight up. Right. It, but that's a good Uh, hip hinge explosive movement, the narrow legs are actually really specific to the stance that we have on the bike. So you could actually say that that exercise with the dumbbell is more specific to uh, a mountain biking explosive hip hinge than a a kettlebell swing. Again, you can try to do this movement with a kettlebell, but you just have to worry about the the kettlebell like hitting your knees. And so there is some some manipulation of the weight that you need to do because of of the load uh, and, and where it's at. But um, so uh, some of the exercises that you can do with the the kettlebell um, are actually easier to do with the dumbbell. So for example, a single arm uh, dumbbell snatch is infinitely easier to do and to coach than the kettlebell version is. And again, the kettlebell version is is great, and if you learn how to do it, it's great. But like. The truth is you don't have to learn how to do that. If you've got a dumbbell and you're doing single arm uh, dumbbell snatches, then you're getting everything you need to out of that movement. You're not going to get more because you're using a kettlebell uh, than you are out of a dumbbell. Um, and so it's, uh, again, you're you're not losing anything. Um, you know, me personally, I've found that pressing exercises with a kettlebell, they hurt my elbows. I know that probably doesn't make any sense um, until you've abused your elbows as much as I have. But something about the pressure, where the pressure of the kettlebell is resting on my forearm, just messes with the my my tendons or whatever that go into my elbow, just enough for it to, to bother my elbow. Um, well, actually, my elbows on both sides, and so um, so using dumbbells for uh, makes it possible for me to lift more weight and to do it more comfortably for my joints. And so again, just for me personally, just doing the upper body stuff um with dumbbells is uh, is easier for me because of, of some of the injuries that I've accrued from riding over the years and finally you can get a good pair of adjustable dumbbells for a few hundred dollars again it's not super cheap but you can get you know for example I, I like the power block uh brand I think that they have the best type uh you know style of adjustable dumbbell uh, around and so you can get a set of I think uh, 10 to 50 pounds uh going in five pound increments for about 400 bucks or so and so but you know so that's a full a set of of two dumbbells like i said 10 through 50 pounds to try and get something comparable with a kettlebell is going to cost a lot more and it's going to uh, take up way more space. And again, I know there's some adjustable kettlebells out there. Um, Again, they're not super cheap. So I think two of those are going to be more than $400. And I'm not like super impressed with most of the adjustable kettlebells that I've seen out there. They don't quite mimic what you're looking for, especially for upper body exercises, uh, the way that a real kettlebell does. And so, um, I'd much rather invest in a pair of adjustable dumbbells. So if I'm limited on space and resources for a home gym, um, then I would lean more towards a pair of adjustable dumbbells than I would towards trying to get some kettlebells. Um, cause I, again, I think that the five pound, you know, uh, loading gives you more opportunities for uh, you know, increasing your load with exercises uh, versus kettlebells, which tend to come in, you know, uh, eight, almost nine pound weight differences. So there's, uh, you know, again, just some some benefits there that I think from using the, the adjustable dumbbells versus a couple of kettlebells. But again, if you've got all you got is kettlebells and you love kettlebells, then like, you know, trust me, I've, had killer workouts and, and done uh, really good things with people that all they had was like a 16 and a 24 kilo kettlebell, right? So I'm, I'm not saying that you can't do good things with that. I'm just saying that uh, the, the dumbbell has a place, right? So I still use kettlebells for swings, lower body lifts, farmer's walks, rowing exercises. I find them to be a great tool for those purposes. Um, I just... Find that, you know, like, I said, like myself and some of the people that I talk to uh, find, you know, have, get to the point where they think that using a dumbbell is inferior to a kettlebell. And that's simply not the case, right? I guess that's really kind of the, the take home message is that, um, you know, you don't, we need to stop looking at the kettlebell with this uh, mystique of it being the superior training tool uh, to the, the dumbbell when that's that's really not the case and so use dumbbells if that's all you have access to you're not missing out on anything if you're looking to equip your home gym and dumbbells make more sense than kettlebells then get the dumbbells right so uh again you can do a lot of the kettlebell training programs you can use uh do using dumbbells anyways so like i said you can just simply mimic the exercises um and uh so anyways yeah so that's, uh, that's it. That's quite the, the list. Uh, um, covered quite the range of topics here. Um, but again, hopefully you guys have taken some lessons from the lessons that I've learned over the years. Uh, so wanted to finish up by just letting you guys know that I do have a dumbbell training program the uh, uh, DB conditioning program it's a it's a 12week program that actually it runs on a like a 5 three one style uh, cycling program and so you are using the same exercises but we're cycling the weights in a very specific way to help you get efficiency and strength in those movements and so uh that program combines a couple of the the concepts you know like using dumbbells and the the progression using a longer progression with the exercises and focusing on on the load changes more Uh, some of the the two lessons that i've learned into this one program. And so again, you can learn more at bikejames.com under the training programs tab. I've got all the the training programs that I have there. And so again, the DB conditioning program is a a great workout program. It's still, I mean, honestly, that was the first one when I first started working with Aaron Gwynn way back in the day. That was the first program that I sent him was my, my, my dumbbell conditioning program. And so uh, he liked it. And, and so if it was uh, good for him, it can probably help you as well. But, uh, but anyway, so you can check that, in, like, check that out, like I said, at bikejames.com. Um, while you're there, if you haven't done so already, you can sign up for the newsletter where I give you a free uh, workout to check out and kind of see some of the, 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 the training styles and things that I recommend. Uh, using. And uh, you also get signed up to the, the newsletter, the, the weekly email update. So uh, i let you know when the podcast come out. Sometimes I'm posting videos and other things that I'll send out uh, there as well. So anyways, hopefully you guys have enjoyed this podcast, and I will talk to everybody next time.